We're going to do uh, baptisms at the end of the service today, so I'm going to move through this pretty quick. Starting in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and he's in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Uh, look back at verse 5. We're just going to move through this again pretty quickly. Put to death. We've, if you've been here over the last three or four weeks, um, as we've worked through Colossians, one of the things that we've said is we, are, we have died. We've been crucified with Christ. Paul makes that point repeatedly in this letter and in his other letters. When we unite ourselves by faith to Jesus, then part of us dies. Our old self, that sin with a capital S that we talked about, our unregenerate self, whatever you want to say. And Paul here is saying put to death. And it could, well, why do I have to put to death something that's already died? But that's the tension that we live in. Until Jesus comes back and makes everything right, we're going to live in this tension between what has already happened and what hasn't yet, what has not yet happened. So spiritually, yes, your old self has died. Spiritually, you're seated with Jesus at the right hand of God, but physically, you're sitting in a chair in Marietta. And there's this tension between those two things. Spiritually, we live in the age to come where there are no more effects of sin, but physically, we still live here in this fallen world, and we wrestle with temptation and sin on a regular basis. So, yes, put to death. There's something for us to do. There's an active uh, participation on our part, but we're putting to death something that's already died, something that doesn't have mastery over us anymore. We've talked before, for people who have not yet joined themselves to Jesus, sin rules their life. The Bible's very clear about that. It's uh, You've had a shopping cart with a bent axle before, and how hard it is to keep that cart straight. The natural, if you push the thing, it's going to run into the Cheez-Its and that whole line of things. That's the aisle that I'm on. For you, it'll run into the bananas or you know, whatever organic stuff you're buying that week. Not for me. So, that's, we're born that way, bent towards sin. When we become Christians, when we join ourselves with Jesus by faith, he straightens the axle, which allows us to stay on the, in the aisle. But we still... There's still struggle. There's still temptation. The double-stuffed Oreos, come over here, and we can do that. We don't have to do that, but we're tempted to do that. And so that's what we need to put to death. So we're putting to death something that's already died, that is available to us. We can have victory, but there's some work to do on our part. So what are we putting to death? Whatever belongs to our earthly nature, that's our sinful nature, fallen nature, unregenerate nature, sin nature, whatever you want to call it. Sexual immorality, that's any sexual activity outside of marriage. Impurity, that's uncleanness, it also has a sexual connotation. Lust, again, also has a sexual connotation. The word there is passion, it's a, a drive or desire that doesn't rest until it's fulfilled. Um, 
Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, they, Galatians, they all have these lists of vices, these lists of behaviors and attitudes. This is just a random list, so just because your deal might not be in this little list, go look somewhere else, and it probably is. It's just a random pulling together for Paul and saying, this is the stuff that needs to be put to death. And the first three all have to do with sexual activity. I don't want to dive into this too much, but just briefly. For Christians, if you're a Christian, the only acceptable sexual activity is within marriage. Husband and wife, that's it. Everything else, out of bounds. I don't care if you have a, how long you've been dating. I don't care if you really, 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 really love them. I don't care if you've been living together. I don't care if you're engaged. Promise ring, fraternity ring, engagement ring. Doesn't, until you have a wedding ring, it's off limits. All of it is. There's a reason there's a wedding before a honeymoon. Commitment precedes intimacy. The reason the relationships in our society are a wreck is because we reverse it. We put intimacy first, and then if we like what we experience, we follow that up with commitment. It makes intimacy a performance-based activity. You can't be transparent. You can't be vulnerable because you're performing. Are you going to like me? Is this enough to get you to stay? Commitment always comes first. Men, you set the bar for that. You create the context for intimacy by clearly stating your level of commitment. You don't game and play and flirt and all of that. It's all basically lying is all you're doing at that point, which we'll talk about in a little bit. You lay it out there. This is, this is where I am. This is what I want. This is the commitment that I'm making to you. And then she either gives you a thumbs up or a thumbs down. That's part of being a man. You've got to take it. Are you going to be rejected? Maybe. But that's the way that we go as men. You set that foundation for her to respond to. You don't try to guess how she's going to respond and try to play things around. Just be honest. Be straightforward. Establish commitment. And then intimacy follows commitment. Always. Your level of intimacy can never outpace your level of commitment or the relationship gets out of whack and it's doomed. And again, according to the Bible, all sexual activity, the level of commitment there is married. So anything that you're going to do by yourself or with someone else, it's all off limits except within a marriage, husband and wife. Good enough. Evil desires, that's an umbrella term for all evil longings that we have. Greed, that's a desire for more. Anything. Easy for us to kind of put that with money, and that's something that a lot of people are greedy for. We can be greedy for power. We can be greedy for popularity. We can be greedy for status. We can be greedy for peace. We can be greedy for joy. We can be greedy. Anything that we want more of can tip over into greed. And I would say for some of you who are Christians, the things that we can tend to get obsessed with are good things. It can cause us to want the things that God gives us more than we want God himself. And you maybe have been in that, there maybe is something, it's a good thing that you want. You really, really want it. And maybe you really, really want it just a little bit too much, and it's trumped the Lord in your heart, and you're seeking this thing that he can give you more than you're seeking him. If so, that's how greed easily can slip into idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God, that's his um, settled opposition to evil. It's not, he doesn't fly off the handle. That's, that's losing your temper. God doesn't do that. 
He's, he's determined because of his holiness. He is opposed to all sin and evil. And his wrath is his expression of opposition to that sin and evil. And we experience his wrath now in terms of kind of temporary judgments or temporal judgments. And there may be a time in your life, again, no matter where you see yourself on the continuum with God, there may have been a time where you were starting to drift away from him and you experienced some pain because of that. And maybe you felt like God was disciplining you or judging you or punishing you, and he probably was. He does that for us. He gives us a little taste of his judgment, of his wrath now to wake us up and to pull us back in line. Because when we die, it's done. Wherever we were with him, all of that is finalized. And he doesn't want us to experience his wrath fully and finally in eternity. So he gives us a taste now, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. And he's trying to pull us back into a relationship with him. Romans 5, 9, what we're saved from. You've heard that phrase, saved. And you might not have any idea what you've been saved from. It's from the wrath of God. Romans 5, 9 says this, since we've now been justified by Jesus' blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Jesus? So we have two choices. We can choose to face the wrath of God on our own for everything we've done in rebellion to him. Or we can say, you know what? I'll just let you take that. Jesus bore the wrath of God. And as we connect with him by faith, then God counts that for us. He took the punishment, his wrath, for us and counts Jesus' righteousness to us. So... Uh, That's verse 6. Verse 7, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself. Rid yourself of what? All such things as these. Anger, that's the same word as wrath that we just talked about. When it's applied to people, it usually has the element of seeking revenge or retaliation. It's It's not the boiling anger that you feel. That's the next word, rage. That's when someone cuts you off in traffic and you respond however you... That's rage. When you fly off the handle, when you lose it, it's kind of like a volcano erupts. It happens quick and then it's done quick. Anger, or the, in, in this case, the first one we're looking at, or wrath, it's, it's almost emotionally detached. It says, you burned me and I'm going to get you. Just wait. A month, two months, a year. It's this decision, a state of mind almost, to pay somebody back. It's Again, it's cool, it's detached, and it's, deadly. So get rid of anger, get rid of rage. We talked about that. Malice, that's just a, kind of another umbrella word, which basically means you're intent on hurting somebody some way. It's just a, a wicked character that says, I'm going to hurt whoever it is that you've decided to hurt. Slander, that's huge where we live. That's an attempt to belittle somebody or to cause them to have a bad reputation. An attempt to belittle someone or cause them to uh, have a bad reputation for us. You know, I think legally slander has to do with telling lies. You don't really see that biblically. If your intent is to knock someone down to size, that's slander biblically. You just want to beware of what you're saying about other people. Very easy for us to fall into that, particularly when it comes, as Christians, we say all the time, well, let me tell you this so you can pray for him. And then you just, come on. If they want them to pray for him, they'll ask. We use that to spread all kinds of stuff about all kinds of people in terms of prayer. Gossip is kind of a subset of slander. And just beware of what you're saying. If your intent is to cause someone to have a bad reputation, you really need to watch out. 
It doesn't mean that you can't warn someone about someone else. You just need to be careful about what you're saying. It's in the same list as adultery. It's all lumped in there together. This is a serious thing, and again, it's an easy one for us to fall into. A filthy language, you know what that is. Don't lie to each other. Lying, we know what that is. That's proclaiming something to be true that we know is false. So anything that we say that doesn't conform to reality is a lie, and we're not supposed to do that. What about a white lie? That means my intentions were good, and I think it would be better for you to hear this fib than for me to tell you the truth. So like the classic, when she says, does this dress make me look fat? What am I supposed to... Is a white lie what you say there? That's kind of the picture. No, it's not. It's never okay. It's lying. What she's asking, she's asking because she's insecure. So address that. Honey, you're the best looking girl in the room. As far as I'm concerned, there's no one else there. It's just you. If you want to change clothes again, go ahead. We've got five minutes. <laughs> what, whatever you have to say. Address the issue. You don't, have to, you don't have to answer the question. Ephesians 4.25 says, Put off all falsehood and deal with one another honestly because we're all in this family together. If we can't speak honestly with one another, what are we doing? Titus 1.2 says, God who does not lie. And we've said before, God's trying to conform us into His image. So if we're lying, even if our intentions are good, we've missed it somehow. God doesn't lie to us, ever. He doesn't tell us little white lies. Now for some of you, what you hear is, ooh, I've got a pass. And now I can use this telling the truth thing, and yeah, I've got some truth to tell. And so, no. You can't use it to excoriate somebody and lay them out and, here, let me tell you some things that are true about you. Ephesians talks about speaking the truth in love. You want to hold that together. Mary Poppins, a spoonful of sugar, absolutely helps the medicine go down. The point in what you're sharing should be helping someone move forward into who God wants them to be. Edifying, this idea of building up a house. Some of us use truth as an excuse to bring a wrecking ball to somebody else. We're jerks. That is not what I'm saying here. I'm saying tell the truth and recognize it's the truth couched in love. The point is to build somebody up to help them become the people that God wants them to be. And if your truth-telling is just a steamroller, you've missed it. Even if what you're saying is factually true, you're wrong. You're tearing somebody down. You need to be invited in before you start bringing that kind of truth to someone. And even when you're invited in, you want to do it in such a way that they can receive it. When you just come straight at somebody, you know they either get defensive or they shut down. Neither one of those is a, is a positive reaction in terms of having your message conveyed and having them receive it. If the point is just for you to score, well, okay, you scored. But if the point is for them to grow, then you've missed it. If all you've done is cause them to get defensive or shut down. You know that. You know how to deal with people. So don't lie, and there aren't excuses for lying. Don't give me Rahab when, and Joshua and she lied. She lied. It was wrong. Nowhere in the Bible does it say she was good as God pat her on the back for lying. Her intentions were good. Maybe there was no other way out of the situation, but she still lied. So there, there, aren't, there aren't reasons for that. Somebody I know at the... First service, so what if somebody asks me if I'm okay and I'm not? Am I supposed, is it okay to tell them? I'm, no, 
most likely they're, they're not listening to your response anyway. Are they? Do you? Hey, how are you doing? You keep on walking. All of those things. We need to be people who tell the truth. Verse 10, we put on a new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. So the picture there, we've taken off our old self. I think that was in verse 7. We put on this new self. Um, in the early church, when they baptized people, they baptized on Easter Sunday, right before the sun came up. They separated the men and women, and they baptized them in some body of water, a lake or river, something like that. And they walked in to the water naked. And when they came out, they were given a new white robe. And because we're trying to be faithful to the early church, our baptisms today, we're going to try that. We have a baby pool, and we have two people. We're going to bring the lights down. No, but the picture there... You nervous? No. The picture there is taking off your old self, putting on this new self. Verse 11, here, that is in the body of Christ, there's no Greek or Jew. There are no racial divisions. There's no circumcised or uncircumcised. There's no religious divisions. That's what we talked about a few weeks ago. We were talking about not judging one another for these gray areas. That it's freedom tethered by love. And a lot of these things that we get hung up about are gray areas where there's freedom for people. And their guide is their conscience and the Holy Spirit living within them. And I want to operate in my freedom, tied tethered by love. There's no barbarian or Scythian. That's cultural differences. There's no slave or free social differences. But Christ is all and is in all. So within the body, what Paul is saying, the fact that we're connected to Jesus trumps anything that would divide us. I'm from the South and you're from the North. Or I like Georgia and you like Georgia Tech. Or your daughter wears monogrammed clothes and I think they're silly. Or whatever it is that causes us to click off from one another. And, and create these little divisions within the body. What Paul is saying, all of those walls have been broken down. And the thing that connects us, Jesus, trumps all of those things that divide us. So stop acting like they're all these little groups. Don't lie to each other, for instance. And these other positives he's about to give to us. So as God's chosen people, chosen, that speaks to our status before the Lord. We're adopted, we're not rejected. We've been chosen by Him. Holy, that speaks to our character. We've been set apart from sin and purpose. We've been set apart for His plans and purposes. For something to be holy, it's not just about what you don't do, it's also about what you do. There were utensils in the Old Testament that were considered holy. It didn't mean they just sat in the display case. They were used for particular purposes. And the same thing is true for us. When God calls us holy, He's not just saying you don't do these behaviors. He's saying I'm setting you apart for my purposes. Dearly loved, that speaks to our identity. Some of you who have been Christians for a long time, you don't feel dearly loved. You feel merely tolerated by the Lord. And you need to know that is not true. He doesn't just put up with you. He loves you. He adopted you. Those of you who are Parents, none of you, unless, you're, unless you adopted, you didn't pick your kids. You got what you got. Adoptive parents, there's a choice there. God adopted us, an expression of the fact He chose us. He's picked us because He loves us. You don't need to feel tolerated or put up with at all. So because of that, this new identity, this new status, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to clothe ourselves. So here's the new white robe we're putting on with compassion. 
the word there is that the idea is the bowels of compassion. It comes from down here. It's not feeling sorry for people. It's being motivated to help others. If you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially, you'll see Jesus is often motivated by compassion. And it doesn't just mean he cries a lot. It causes him to help people. He feeds people who are hungry. He teaches people who need to be taught. He heals people who are sick. One instance, I think it's in Luke, there's a, a, a widow, I mean a, a woman. She has her only son and he's dead and he's being carried by in a coffin. It says Jesus is moved by compassion. and He raises the boy from the dead. He sees the mother. She's a wreck and he addresses her needs. So for us to, say, to put on compassion, it has to do with what we do at least as much, if not more, than what we feel. What else do we put on? Kindness, which is a goodness of heart also has to do with action, helping other people. It's not being nice. That's fine. But what Paul is talking about is actually doing good work to help other people. Gentleness, no, humility, excuse me, I skipped one. Humility, that's a lowliness of mind. That's recognizing your own, my own weakness and recognizing the power of God. Gentleness, that word is actually meekness. That's not a word that we use very much. It's a little difficult for us to grasp. Kind of the picture there is someone who recognizes God's dealing with them as good, whether or not it's pleasant, and someone who chooses not to gripe or complain. So God is working in my life, and if I'm meek, then I'm, ex- I'm accepting, A-C-C, accepting of what he's doing in my life, even if I don't like it. I don't gripe, and I don't complain, and I don't resist. Meekness is not weakness. We can put those two things together. Weakness is when you don't have the power or the ability to do something. Meekness means you do have the power and the ability and you're choosing not to use it. Maybe the best example, in the garden, Jesus is arrested. Judas has betrayed him. him, There's this crowd of soldiers who come to arrest him. And Peter pulls out a sword and cuts off a guy's ear try to, to defend Jesus. And Jesus says, put it back. This is in Matthew 26. Put the sword back. Do you think I can't call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? I think a legion maybe was a thousand, so that's a lot of angels. But how then would the scripture be fulfilled? The scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way. So what you see there is Jesus is not weak. I can do this. I can fix this. I can right now. This thing could be solved. But I'm choosing not to because I'm accepting ACC of the will of God. I'm accepting what he's done. The scriptures have been laid out. This is how it has to happen. And even though it's not going to be pleasant for me, and he knows it's not going to be pleasant for him, I'm going to choose to submit to those circumstances. Anyway, that's meekness, something for us to cultivate. Patience, you know what patience is, bearing injustices or unpleasant circumstances and not looking for revenge. Bear with each other, put up with each other. And forgive whatever grievances. So that's forgive all of the complaints that you have against someone else. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. On forgiveness, two things. How did the Lord forgive us? Freely and fully. 1 John 1.9, if you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. There's no begging, there's no groveling, you don't have to sleep on the couch. Forgiveness says... It's, it's given to us. You confess and you're forgiven. 
it's difficult for us. They're going to take advantage of me. They're going to step all over me. They need to know how much this hurt me. They need to feel sorry. That's a huge one. You want to make them feel sorry and you become the judge of what sorry is. You're not sorry enough. God doesn't do that. Confess and you're forgiven. Difficult for us to practice, but it's there. doesn't mean they didn't hurt you. It doesn't mean that you have to put yourself back in a position to have the same thing happen again. But when someone wrongs you, particularly if it's someone who you're in a relationship with, it puts you in a position of power. You have something you can dangle over them for a while for whatever reason you want. You can manipulate their behavior for some specified period of time until you let them off the hook. Forgiveness is saying, I'm not playing that game. I'm letting you off the hook right now. doesn't mean you weren't wrong. doesn't mean you didn't hurt me. It just means I'm going to choose not to stand in judgment and exercise this power that I have over you. And he forgives us fully. I think it's in Psalm 103. David says, the Lord removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. That's how far he removes our sins from us. So bringing stuff back up, bringing up old dirt. This happens in long-term relationships. Marriage, uh, parent-child, friend that you've had a long-term relationship with, you see this. It, it comes back up very clearly. 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs. If you're keeping score, you're not loving. So you can't throw stuff back in someone's face once you've forgiven them. That means you haven't let them off the hook. You're keeping a record of wrong, and God doesn't do that to us. When you mess up for the 125th time, he doesn't say to you, well, you know you always do this. How many times have you heard that? When you don't obey, he never says, you never fill in the blank. We use those words all the time. Freely and fully forgive one another. I know that's difficult to do, and you're probably already thinking of all the exceptions to those rules, but there aren't any. Forgive fully and freely. And over all these virtues put on love, that's my commitment to do what's best for you regardless of what it costs me. That's love in the body of Christ, which binds them together in perfect unity or in completeness. So that's what Paul is saying. Do these things. This is very uh, behavior-driven in this section. Act this way. Put these things to death. Get rid of these things. Start doing this. The danger for some of us is when you hear me telling, saying these things, do this and don't do this, you're making a list of things that you need to change. I need to do these things. I need to not do these things. The danger is, is uh, moving our behavior ahead of our relationship with the Lord. This is the gospel. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the gospel. We talked about it last week. It begins with rest. Resting in the Lord, being in a relationship with Him, remaining in Him, abiding in Him. Then it moves to change behavior. We live out of our hearts, and until our hearts are changed, we've got no shot at putting anything to death or getting rid of anything or putting on a new self. The Pharisees, Jesus criticized for doing this. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Don't hear me doing that here. I'm not trying to load you down with a bunch of stuff that you need to implement this week. It's not what we're doing. We begin with rest. We've been talking about Colossians for like three or four months, and so it's easy to forget the beginning. The beginning, what Paul is saying is this is who Jesus is. He says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He holds everything together. He has forgiven us. He has reconciled us to God. He has defeated the powers and principalities that are opposed 
to us. He's delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and moved us, translated us into the kingdom, His kingdom, the kingdom of the Son that He loved. Jesus has done all of those things. So what Paul is saying is because of who He is and what He's done, we have new status with the Lord and we have a new nature. Again, we've been reconciled. We're not alienated. We've been reconciled to God. We died with Jesus to the basic principles of this world. We've been raised with Jesus. Our life is hidden with Him. We've taken off our old self, put on our new self. We're now God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. So because of what Jesus has done, we have new status with God, and we have new hearts, and we live out of our hearts. And because my relationship with God is restored, and my heart is new, then I can start living this stuff out. That's why all this stuff is at the end of the letter. He's already laid the foundation. The assumption at this point is he's speaking to people who are connected with God through Jesus and people whose, whose heart has been renewed by him. And then he's saying, live like that. Be who you are. You have a new heart, so live out of a new heart. You're dead to sin, so don't commit sin anymore. You have a new nature, so live out of that new nature. You see, but that sequence is very important. And for some of you who were raised in a church, maybe the assumption is because you've been raised in a church and you're a good person and a moral person, you might have forgotten the importance of connecting with God through Jesus putting your faith and trust in Him, and you're skipping straight over into the behavior. You see that all the time. People love Jesus's, this the ethic of Him, His ethics, and they want to follow the Sermon on the Mount, and that's how I'm going to live. You can't live that way until your heart's been changed. And He doesn't expect you to do that. So we begin with Him, and then because our status with Him has changed, and because our hearts have changed, well, then He says, seek things in heaven. Put your heart on things in heaven. Set your mind on, think about things above, things in heaven. Put to death what belongs to your sinful nature. Clothe yourself with these virtues, humility and meekness and love. Take off your old self and put on your new, all of these things because of what he's done for us. I'm going to wrap up with this. So what do we do? How do we do this? Step one is you have to, if there's a hook in your heart, you have to remove the hook. Any of you have ever been fishing? When a fish hits the hook, the first thing you do is you yank back on the rod and it sets the hook in his mouth. Then you don't care what the fish does. He can swim, he can run from you all day long. And it doesn't matter because when you're ready and he's tired, you can reel him back in. And the same thing happens in our hearts. If you have had the same sinful thought pattern or the same sinful behavior pattern for a long period of time, what that does is it allows the devil to set a hook in your heart, and he'll let you run. He'll let you say, you know, come back from a camp or a retreat or a great quiet time, and I'm never going to think this way again, or I'm never going to commit this sin again. And he'll say, great, go for it. And he'll give you three days worth of run, or a week worth of run, or a month worth of run. But he knows all he's got to do is start reeling you back in. And some of you know what I'm talking about. You feel defeated in some area of your life. It doesn't matter how disciplined you are. The tempt the the temptation is coming from inside of you, not outside. And you don't feel like you can fight it because you're fighting yourself. The only thing you can do, you have to remove the hook. And just like a fish can't take the hook out of its own mouth, you can't take the hook out of your own heart. James 5.16, confess your sins to one another so you will be healed. That's what needs to happen. If there's some area of your life where you continually struggle, you need to be willing to ask somebody to pray with you to take the hook out. I've been meeting uh, with a girl. I've met with her every other week for about eight weeks. 
And beginning, we were talking about some other things, and we got down to the root. She just thinks she's a loser, bottom line. And so when she's having a bad day, kind of these thoughts start running through her mind, and she cannot. She's a Christian. She loves the Lord. She's gone on mission trips, all of these things. Small group, she's done it all. But when these thoughts come, she cannot fight them. And it's just a matter of time before she drives through Chick-fil-A because that's what makes her feel better. And so that's been our little thing. Have you driven through Chick-fil-A this week? Yes, yes, yes. And then we met probably three weeks ago. And I said, you just need to ask somebody. Find a woman. Ask them to pray for you to pull this hook out, this idea that you're a loser. And I, I gave her, I asked her to meet with Penny, our children's pastor. And I saw her last week and I said, how did it go? Did you have Penny pray with you? Yeah, we went to breakfast. Did she pray for you? Yeah, it took half of a second. Have you run through Chick-fil-A since? No. Three weeks for her, which is huge for her. I said, do you still have the temptation to think that you're a loser? She said, absolutely. But it's out here now. It's not in here. And I can resist it. That's the picture for all of us. Some of you feel like it's not that easy for me. You don't know fill in the blank. It is. might not be easy, but it's simple. Pull the hook out. Then you're free to live how the Lord wants you to live. But until you get the hook out, you're done. You're not going to be able to put to death whatever it is that needs to be put to death. You're not going to be able to get rid of whatever it is that you need to get rid of. And you're definitely not going to be able to clothe yourself with this new clothing, this new robe that the Lord wants you to give, wants to give to you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, for what you've done for us. We thank you for who you are, Jesus. We thank you for what your life and your death and your resurrection mean for us. And God, my prayers for anyone in this room who's not connected with you that this would be the morning that they would hear you saying, son, daughter, I've chosen you. Will you come home? You don't have to live in the wilderness any longer. I've got a feast set and I would love for you to eat this with me. Any who are distant from you today, I pray today would be the day that you would draw them close. They would see themselves not as rejected or forsaken, but chosen, picked by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That they would say yes to you this morning. God, for those of us who maybe have been Christians, but there's a hook in our heart, there's an, there's an area, whether it's thoughts or behavior, we just can't lick. God, I pray for courage to find the right person man or woman, to talk to, to pray with us and to release us from that hook, to pull that hook out of our hearts so the enemy can't yank on us and reel us in at his pleasure, that we'd have victory in these areas of our life. We'd be able to put to death these things in our sinful nature. We'd be able to get rid of these thought patterns from our sinful nature. We'd be able to clothe ourselves with this new nature. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.